Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. This week, we've been bringing you old conversations from our archives for Black History Month. Today's isn't an old interview, but it is about the long history of Black people in America. It's from the folks at Throughline. They spoke with author Isabel Wilkerson about her book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent. And what she lays out in that book is that caste, more than race, is the prevailing hierarchy in our country. You might have read her book, The Warmth of Other Sons, about the Great Migration. And Wilkerson makes the point that Often, people talk about that book through the framing of racism, that people fled the Jim Crow South because they were running away from racism. But she says that's not exactly right. And she says the word racism doesn't even appear in that book. Instead, as she tells NPR's Ramtin Arablouei and Rund Abdel Fattah, what they were really running away from was caste. It's sacred work to be able to record the experiences of people who have been part of history, but not been included in the history. This is Isabel Wilkerson. I am author of The Warmth of Other Suns, which was about the outpouring of six million African Americans from the South to the rest of the country seeking refuge from the caste system known as Jim Crow. Isabel spent a decade gathering research and conducting interviews for her book. It's both a sweeping story of a major event in American history, the Great Migration, and an intimate portrait of what it was like for those who lived through it. We sat down with Isabel Wilkerson to discuss her new book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, which makes the bold argument that caste, rather than race, gives us a better framework to understand American history. When Isabel Wilkerson was working on her first book, The Warmth of Other Suns, she noticed a strange pattern emerging in her research that would become the basis of her next book. A lot of the anthropologists and sociologists who were writing about the Jim Crow South in the 1930s were using a word she wasn't used to seeing in an American context. I was immersed in that world. I was focused in on what it was like to live in that world. And as a result of that, um, I became aware of how others who had studied that world while it was actually in progress, they were referring to that structure that existed in the American South. They described it as a caste system. As I was talking to the people who were survivors of that caste system and who had defected from that, that world, I recognized, too, that caste was the most appropriate, comprehensive, and accurate way to describe what they had experienced. It was through that recognition of what the Jim Crow South was actually like that I came to the recognition that caste was the appropriate word. How would you define caste? And how does caste differ from race in the American context? Well, caste is millennia old. I mean, it's thousands and thousands of years old. Uh, In India, for example, it's been, it's many, many uh, thousands of years old. So as a concept, caste predates the idea, the concept of race, which is a fairly new concept in human history. Caste is essentially an artificial arbitrary, in many respects, construction of hierarchy, ranking the people within a culture or a society based upon their connection to whatever is the dominant caste. 
And when you look at any caste system, there's going to be a group that's on the top and there's a group that's on, on the bottom and those in the middle who are often struggling to navigate between these two poles and often are, are seeking to identify with and gain the favor of those who are at the very top of the hierarchy. Mm. And in the United States, it's very clear historically from the beginning of colonial times, there were the people who were dominant and they were the English and those who might have come closest to them. And then at the very, very bottom were transported to the new world, people who would be enslaved. And the recognition, the immediately visible recognition based upon what they looked like, made them sadly, tragically more vulnerable to being uh, identified as very, very different from those who were the dominant group. Mm -hmm. And so Africans became the subordinated group. And then there were people outside of that caste system, the people who had been ruthlessly, brutally driven from their own land, the indigenous people who were pushed outside and maybe made exiles in the emerging caste system. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds like the caste system really boils down to a power structure that keeps people in kind of distinct, I don't want to say classes, but in distinct power dynamics. Um, with one another. And I guess I'm wondering, in contrast with race, which can also reinforce like power dynamics, how does caste capture that more than race does? Racism has, as a word, is not very, there's not an agreement on what it means. It's often connected to the emotions of hate, hostility, um, disliking, prejudice. These mm -hmm. are very emotionally fraught perspectives on how we relate to one another. But caste takes us away from the emotion. Caste is about structure. It's about the infrastructure that we have inherited. It is not about feelings. It's, it is really about power and how those other groups manage and navigate and seek to survive in a society that's created with this ranked hierarchy that's been made invisible to us because it's so much a part of how things work in the country. When you were constructing sort of this idea for a book in framing the U.S. context and U.S. history that maybe is familiar to us on the surface, but in these sort of foreign terms, that creates a new vantage point through which to see it, right? And I wonder how how much you were thinking about that when you were working on this book. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for putting it that way. I mean, it's like looking at ourselves from a different vantage point that we never would have thought of before. Because it allows us to see it from a different lens. Using caste as a way to frame American history or look at American history, how can that change the way we approach the problems we're facing today that we continue to face, um, whether it's kind of um, income inequality, uh, racial oppression, having a kind of caste frame of American history, how can that kind of change the way we approach problems today? Caste is, I find it to be a liberating concept in an odd kind of way because it takes the personal out of it. 
It removes the the heaviness of preconceived notions about how we would view ourselves. It's fresh and new in a different kind of way. I believe that in the era in which we live, we need new language to work our way through what it is that we're experiencing. The same language that was applied to the era of, you know, cross-burning clansmen of the early 20th century might not be the most effective way to deal with the divisions and tensions that we are facing today. This is a really long-standing, enduring concept that seems to have survived all of the various uh, civil rights legislation to deal with the various efforts to redress past injustices and current ones. It seems to be a through line Mm. for how things have continued to be as we live today. It is a continuum. And so that's the reason why I think that CAST actually gives us a new framework, new language, a new way of looking at what has always been there, but that we have not necessarily been able to see. I consider myself a writer of narrative nonfiction. And I consider myself a historian at this point because I spend so much time with the history. First and foremost, this work requires listening and an open heart to hearing how other people have experienced something. I love your work. I love Warmth of Other Sons. And also um, in this particular book, you use uh, chapters of from history or points from history to really illuminate points about the world we live in today. How do you think about how history is going to help you tell the story? Like in the case of caste, um, when you began thinking about how to tell the story, what was your approach? Well, I I started completely from uh, a perspective of I understand and know and have studied the American caste system as it existed uh, in the Jim Crow South. So that I knew. What I did not know was how it manifested in other places. What were the origins of what I saw as, a, as an underlying phenomenon that we still have to deal with, but are not even aware that we are dealing with it. So the first goal was to understand India, to understand uh, and study and research how does it work there? What are the uh, parallels that could be gleaned from it? And I was you know, stunned to discover the parallels that I did. One of the things that, that you know comes to mind for me is that you know we often ask why do these people do this thing or do that thing? And I have come to believe that the only question really is what do human beings do when they are in the circumstances that they're in? And so I ended up finding so many parallels in the ways that human beings respond based upon where they happen to be. The importance of maintaining the purity of the dominant caste in both societies was paramount in formulating their caste systems. And of course, the the one in India is thousands upon thousands of years old, and yet far, far away in a completely different millennium, you know, the early Americans began to create boundaries around the dominant caste that persisted well into the 20th century. A lot of it having to do with water and the sanctity of water. It turned out that, for example, in India, 
the people who were then called untouchables and now Dalits were not permitted to drink from the same well. They, there are many, many, many restrictions around them having to do with water. And in the United States, uh, into the 1960s, there were cases where when desegregation of the pools and of other facilities were to be enacted, there were many places, not just in the South, I should say all over the country, that refused to, to integrate, refused to allow African-Americans into these pools and actually poured concrete into the pool so that no one could use the pool rather than to allow African-Americans into the water with white Americans. Well, and then... And that's the thing, right? Like when, whenever we're tackling something, we're also, I mean, there's there's so much usually that we have to sort of wade through to, <laughs> to find the story and what we're going to keep in and what we're going to take out and all of that. And so I wonder when, like when you were working on Cass and also Warmth of Other Suns, how much interrogating that kind of central narrative that you were presenting, how do you sort of reckon with that? Well, I mean, I I uh, focus in on getting as much as I can from wherever I can get it. You know, I I for this book, I was you know ordering books from all over the world. I mean, there are books coming in from India, books coming in from uh, that I ordered from the UK. Uh, reading as much as I could to get the understand the history, particularly the works of the era. The goal was to get the books that had been written in the 1930s, books that had been written in the 1890s uh, out of the UK, if I could get my hands on them. So there was that whole effort of just doing the research. And then there was the meeting with and hearing the stories, hearing the testimony, the the bearing witness of the people who had experienced uh, some aspect of caste that I was attempting to convey somehow. I mean, listening you know, very deeply to the testimony of people that I might have been seeking out or might have come across in the process of working on this, or even before uh, I began actively working on it. And then the effort to, with reluctance, to think about what were the examples that might be helpful to readers from my own experience to show in some ways the irony that even as you're working on something, you yourself are experiencing the phenomenon yourself. And so those were the many things that I was managing and, and juggling as I was putting this together. But the main goal is to, to, uh, to amass and to pull together as much as I possibly can. I try not to worry so much about making the decisions in the moment of, ma of amassing the information. And then I start to, to get into the writing. And when you can get into the flow, you recognize what is necessary. I mean, one of the things about it is I really wanted it to be very concise. But the more that I got into it, the more I was discovering. And it grew much bigger than I had anticipated. But it became necessary in order to create a comprehensive framework for understanding this phenomenon and how it manifests throughout whatever caste system one might be looking at. You know, there's been a lot of criticism of historical storytelling that seems to feed, like, basically using history to feed a particular perspective or narrative the author is trying to tell. And that, that kind of what some people call cherry picking of history can be dangerous because it doesn't give a kind of a fuller, broader perspective. As you know, this has been one of the critiques of, of the 1619 Project. What do you think of that critique? Do you think there is real um, legitimacy in the danger of perhaps cherry picking a story in such a way that 
just tries to make an ideological point? Well, I think that uh, so much of the history that we have received as Americans has been from a singular perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we are only now beginning to hear the voices of people who had been in the shadows, not seen, not heard. And that means that we have not had the full history. We have not had the full experience of knowing what uh, the complete picture is of our country. And I think that we are beginning, only beginning to be able to hear from the voices of people who had not been heard before. Uh, I can only obviously speak for the work that I'm doing. And I would say that the goal is to, for the Warmth of the Suns, for example, was a chance finally for people who had survived the Jim Crow caste system to be able to speak for themselves about their experience. There are many, many things that have been written about that era by others. And this was a chance to be able to hear from the people who had lived it before it was too late. And many of the people who, in the process of even doing that book, they actually passed away in the process. So this was a you know, the clock was ticking every day and every week that I was working on it. So this was this is an effort to allow people's voices to be heard. And I, I think that we can only benefit from hearing, you know, multiple experiences from people who haven't been heard before. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank and thank you. you for writing this book. Thank you. Take care. And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Kelly Wessinger and edited by Megan Sullivan and Taylor Burney. Big shout out to our intern, Fee O'Reilly, who helped with research. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show Elements This Week were produced and edited by Gemma Waters, Ramtin Arablui, Rund Abdel-Fatah, Jamie York, Lawrence Wu, Lane Kaplan-Levinson, Julie Kane, Kia Miyaka-Natisse, and Natalie Barton. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.